0: Have you ever played bocce? Anybody? How many of you played bocce? Right? Okay. Wow. Quite a few. So there's that, that little ball. Does anybody know what the little ball is called? I think I might have heard all three of them. I heard Jack. Polini. What was the other one? Oh, closely. Close. The bocchino. I actually looked this up. It's amazing what you learn as a pastor, things that you get to look up. It is called the Jack, the bocchino, the Polino. Let's close in prayer. Uh, no. <laughs> That's all you need to know this morning. I guess it depends on where you're playing it. In Italy, it's one thing, in the States, it's another, and I don't know. Somebody else calls it something else. But anyway, the gist of the game is you throw this little ball, you throw it out somewhere. I've only ever played just informally, so we would just throw it in the yard somewhere. And then everybody would take uh, one of theirs and they would throw it as close as they can. So it's similar to horseshoes. You're trying to get as close to the jack, the little ball, as you can. The problem is there's times when several people are close. You all get within maybe a foot or two and you're kind of eyeballing it and trying to figure out who's closer and usually somebody starts walking it off with their shoe or a string is pulled out or if you're really intense, a guy goes in the garage and gets his tape measure or something and says, okay, we got to get this right and they're trying to figure out and everybody's feeling pretty good because look how close we are. We're, we're all within a foot or two and we need to measure to see who's better. And then the winner is declared. But what if the little ball was actually miles away? Miles, hundreds of miles. What if it was thousands of miles away? And we all got up with our ball and we did our little toss and we made it maybe 10 feet. Some of you were just fantastic and maybe could really throw it far and you got like 15 or 20 feet. And, and then we're all going, oh, wow, you know, we're so close. Let's see who the winner is. Would that really be all that impressive? I mean, if the little ball is so far away, and we all fell so short, it wouldn't be a very exciting game, would it? So you know what maybe we'd be tempted to do? Maybe we'd just say, well, that that ball, that, that jack that's out there, nobody's going to make it. That's, that's too far. So let's just pick, how about that blade of grass right there, the closest one to that blade of grass? And as soon as you do that, somebody else would say, well... <laughs> Of course you'd pick that blade. It's closest to your ball. How about we do this one? Well, no, that's, that's closer to your ball. And suddenly we all start coming up with our own standard to make ourselves look better. This is exactly what's going on in the world today. We have lost sight of the fact that there is a standard. Something so great that everything else must be measured against This standard. Today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And I would submit it's the same issue. Today we pray for our country. We pray for our world against the horror of abortion. Abortion is a symptom of this issue in our world changing standards to make ourselves feel good, changing definitions of life, changing who has the right to live so that we can feel better about ourselves. It's an illness that puts our wants, our needs, our desires as the standard above all else. And it's a slippery standard. And it's a standard that is too small. And in the past 44 years since the Roe versus Wade decision it is estimated over 50 million babies have been murdered. And I say murder because the definition of murder is taking someone else's life unjustly. And that's what it is. And we can redefine it however we want, but when we allow that standard to slip we fall into the place of playing God and saying that blade of grass that's closest to my personal happiness, that's now my standard and I'm allowed to do whatever I want. Today we continue on in our series in Hebrews. We're going to talk about the greatness of Christ. Because I truly believe That while there is worth in the political discussions, while there is worth in the debates, while there's worth in the discussions about the right to life and all of those things and all of the other things that are plaguing our society, I think there's value in those discussions. Until we come to an acceptance and an understanding of the absolute greatness of Jesus Christ, the rest of it is doomed to fail. Because the standard will always change. And we might win on one issue and lose on 10 others. And what does it matter? We need to recover the greatness of Jesus Christ. And by saying that, please understand, I'm not saying we need to make him great again. Oh, he's already there. We just need to wake up to that truth. Open up to Hebrews chapter 1. We're just going to look at the first four verses this morning. Let me read this for us in Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to them, or to theirs. This passage is one sentence in the original Greek. It is considered one of the most sophisticated and stylish Greek sentences in the entirety of the New Testament. What you're looking at here is is like the New Testament version of William Shakespeare, Emily Dickinson, or Lord Tennyson. It is absolute poetry on paper. It is beautiful. And I say that because if you're anything like me, you probably don't read Greek, and I don't either. But I read the scholars, and when they look at it and they say, this is beautiful, I want us to understand the beauty of God's Word, beauty that we may not be able to see in the English, but I want you to know it's there. This is scholarly, beautiful poetry, but it's also rich with meaning. The author uses alliteration, rhythm, parallelism, repetition, and a literary structure called chiasm, or what's known as a chiastic structure. And it's that literary technique I want to focus in on this morning. Not just to teach you some interesting technique in Greek literature, but because it will help you to see the heart of this passage. So let's look at the chiastic structure. I won't ask you to show your hands if you've heard of this. But basically, the chiastic structure is based around the Greek letter X, chi. That's where the word comes from, chiastic. And the way this works is that an author sets up a number of ideas. I'll just call them A, B, and C here, which is, works well for our passage because there are three ideas that are used. And then the author comes back and repeats those ideas in a modified form in the opposite order. So he went A, B, C, then he goes C, B, A. The point of this structure is what is at the middle. By seeing one of these structures in scripture, the author is shining a spotlight on what is going on in the middle of this structure and saying, look at this. All of these things that I've just said point to this main structure. Point. So let's look at this in the book of Hebrews. The author starts by making three statements about Jesus Christ. He starts by talking about in verses 1 and 2 that he is greater than the prophets. That's a bold statement. He then goes on to say he is the messianic heir. says verse 2, He's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. says Jesus has a right He has a status that is above all else. He is our Messiah, the inheritor of all things. And then it talks about Jesus' work in creation through whom he, God, made the universe. God made the universe through Jesus Christ. Okay, so three points there. He is greater than the prophets, he is the messianic heir, and he's the work in creation. Now stick with me. I know this is where I start glazing over a little bit, but watch what happens here. He's going to come back to three more topics. He talks about his work in salvation or his work in redemption. It says at the end of verse 3 or toward the end, actually about the middle, after he had provided purification for sins. So there the Messiah has worked on our behalf and provided redemption, purification for our sins. And then he goes on to describe describe him in a kingly manner. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven the statement of his position now, kingly as Messiah. And then verse 4, so he became much superior to the angels. So watch what's happening here. He's greater than the prophets. The prophets are messengers of God. And one of the things we have to understand, in the Greek language, the word angel means messenger. The word angel means messenger. It means messenger, okay? It's not some lady in a white fluffy robe with white fluffy Things. It's just a messenger. A heavenly messenger, yes, but a messenger. So the comparison there is an earthly, a prophet, an earthly messenger, and a heavenly messenger. And he says Christ is greater than both of them. And then he goes on and he talks about the messianic work that Christ did. He is the heir and he is the king. And then he talks about his work in creation and his work in redemption. And all of this points to, and we're going to come back to this stuff in a second, so I'm glazing over it pretty quick. Let's look at what the main point is. What is at the heart and soul of all of these statements? What are they all pointing to that the author is saying, wake up, Notice this, lights are flashing, bells are ringing. Don't miss this. So what is it? Verse three, Jesus is God. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. That's it right there. So when we walk through Hebrews, and as we walk through our lives, When we come to the greatness of Jesus Christ, it is okay to talk about Christ is great because he did this for me. Christ is great because he did this for others. It's okay to talk about those things, but never ever lose sight of the fact that the greatness of Jesus Christ is tied to the fact that he is God. Because the time will come when you'll doubt what Christ has done for you or something will happen and you'll say, well, he did that for me then, but he's not doing it for me now. And suddenly your greater than equation gets messed up because you feel like something greater is going on in your life right now. Nothing can change the fact that the greatness of Jesus Christ is tied to the fact that He is God. So let's look at these in order. Let's start with the greatness of Christ's Word. The passage begins and ends comparing Jesus Christ to other messengers, the prophets in verse 1 and the angels in verse 4. Look at verses 1 and 2. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Now, first of all, the first thing that hits me out of that verse is the fact that we have a God who speaks. That might seem trite, it might seem easy to skip over that, but think about that for a second. We have a Heavenly Father that wants to, longs to, puts effort into, and has done so throughout all of the ages, communicating with us. God wants you to know Him. God is not some huge mystery that is completely and totally unknowable, otherwise this Bible would mean nothing. Now, don't get me wrong, he's beyond our knowledge, but he is not completely unknowable. And God has worked hard for you to know him and for humanity to know him. In the past, he spoke through the prophets. This is, I believe, the Hebrew author's way of saying the Old Testament. It's not... Typical, but it's not completely unusual to sum up the entirety of the Old Testament with speaking of the prophets. But the idea is these human messengers. And so people would say, well, the prophet Elijah said, the prophet Jeremiah said, the prophet Isaiah, the prophet Ezekiel. And they say, these are a big deal. Look at who these guys were. And they were impressive. They were amazing. God had chosen them. He had set them aside for a specific work. And when they spoke, it was a big deal. And one of the biggest deals in the Old Testament when you come or talk about prophets is Moses himself. To the Jewish people, Moses was the epitome of a prophet. The spokesperson of God that said, this is what God has told me. I am now telling it to you. Which, again, we have to understand what a prophet is. A prophet is not a fortune teller. It's not somebody that just tells the future. It is somebody that conveys the very message of God to the people. Might involve the future, but not always. So when Moses came down off of Mount Sinai and he said, this is what God has told me about the tabernacle, about our laws, about our people. He was acting as a prophet, a messenger of God. But it's interesting the way the author of Hebrews talks about God speaking. Because the author can quote something right out of the Old Testament, but he will refer to it not as it is written, but God has said. I love that. Think about that for a second. To look at any point in Scripture and say, this is what God has said. How many people think, you know, if God would just speak to me, God would just appear and just, just talk to me right now. If he would just talk to me in this situation, I would believe, I would have faith, it would be wonderful. God has spoken volumes. It's here. This is God's speech to us. And I love the way the author of Hebrews does that over and over again. When we read scripture, we are hearing God speak. Now, what the author is saying here is not that every communication before Christ was bad. We need to be careful here, okay? It's easy as sort of New Testament Christians to ignore the Old Testament, say, well, we have Christ now, we don't need that stuff. It's never bad. It was incomplete. But it pointed to something. And the author of Hebrews is going to comb through the Old Testament and show how it points us to Jesus Christ. Every communication before Christ was good, but incomplete. There are several key points in the book of Hebrews where the author refers to God speaking. Sometimes, or or two specific times in the Old Testament when God spoke with authority. The one is in creation. If you look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. And the Greek word there is at his word. His word of power, his word of authority. God spoke and the universe came into existence. That's authority. That's greatness right there. And so we see that the author of Hebrews, and this is done throughout scripture, it's all the way back in Genesis, it gives Uh, uh, the authority of the very creation of the universe to the spoken word of God. Another place is on Mount Sinai. If you know the story of the Old Testament, God saves the Old Testament people out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea, miraculously saved by God's power, and they get to this mountain, Mount Sinai, and they encamp around the bottom of the mountain. And God calls Moses up to the top and he speaks to him. And the Israelites hear things. They hear the thunder. They see the lightning. They feel the earth shaking. And they say, God is speaking. We better pay attention. Now, they didn't do so well at that. But they understood that God was speaking. Turn to Hebrews 12, verse 19. The author taps into this. I'll go back to verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, That is burning with fire to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged no further word be spoken to them. Do you understand what's going on there? The author is saying, hey, God spoke to his people at another time on a mountain and it was a big deal and they were supposed to pay attention to it. And if you remember, there's a theme throughout Hebrews. We need to pay attention to Jesus. Jesus. And then the corollary to that, we need to keep going. Keep on following. So we have these two times that God has spoken that form sort of a backdrop to many of the things of Hebrews. God spoke and the world was created. God spoke and His people were created. The people of Israel, the law was given. And then He says, But now, in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. What does he mean by that? Is Christ just a better messenger than the prophets and the angels? Well, yes, he is a better messenger. Because when we hear Christ speak, we are hearing God speak. So he is a better, more accurate, clearer message from God to us. He is a better messenger. But he's not only a messenger, he is the message. If you want to know what God is saying, if you want to know how God loves you, look at Jesus Christ. Look at him as he touches a leper and heals them. Look at him as he deals with women that the society had thrown away and he deals with them respectfully. Oh, I pray that that would be our standard today. Look at him as he lays down his life and sheds his blood for you. Look at his power when he raises from the dead and promises eternal life to all who believe. Jesus is not only the messenger, he is the message. But go one farther. He's not only the messenger and the message, he's the message giver. Jesus isn't coming on behalf of somebody else and saying, hey, guess what so-and-so is saying? He is standing before us as the Lord of heaven and earth, God himself, and speaking. He is the message giver, God in the flesh. The messenger and the message became flesh as the message giver himself. And he came and he dwelt among us. And we see his greatness and we hear him speak. And look at verse 3. In the middle of the verse, it says, Christ sustains all things by his powerful word. Think about what that means. We think about the baby in the manger. We think about Christ that walks and teaches and calls disciples. Hopefully we think about the cross and the resurrection, and that's amazing. But do we also take a step farther and say at every moment, every molecule of our bodies, every atom in the entire universe is held together and moving in the appropriate way because Jesus Christ says so. All things are sustained by his powerful word. Jesus Christ is no mere messenger of God. He is the ultimate messenger, the ultimate message, because he is God. That makes him different than all else. So when you see people get up and and talk about other religions, when you hear them talk about other prophets or other messengers or other writings, come back to, they're not Jesus. He is is God. He's not just a good man. He's not just a good teacher. That is the greatness of Christ's word. Let's look at the greatness of Christ's work. Two things are said about Christ's work. All things were created through him, and he is the one who provides salvation. When Jesus came to his own, in fact, let's look at it. Turn to John chapter 1. Because John is saying the same thing, but he elaborates on it a little bit. John chapter 1, right at the beginning. And again, John refers to Jesus as this word, this communication. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Then if we skip down to verse fourteen, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the only one, and of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So there's who Jesus is. But now back up a little bit. Verse 11, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Think about the greatness of who Christ is. He was in the world. Verse 10 of John chapter 1, he was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world didn't even recognize him. Jesus, Lord of heaven and earth, came and lived among us. He came to save the very people that he had created. He came and lived in a world infected by sin and dealt with it because he is the one who can set it right as the creator of all things. It was unthinkable to the Jewish mindset to give any credit at all for creation to anyone other than God. So, what the author of Hebrews is doing, and what John is doing, and what is done all throughout the New Testament, is to say, when you look at creation, and you're saying nobody else except God did that, you're absolutely right, and Jesus did it. Because Jesus is God. They are one in the same. The other thing that Christ did in His work is He provided purification for sins. And as the author of Hebrews will do so much throughout this book, he's referring to the Day of Atonement. The time when the high priest would perform the ritual sacrifice that God had prescribed in order to purify the people and purify the place of God's dwelling so that he could live among them. I'm not going to speak about that too much this morning because it will come up again and again in the book of Hebrews. But again, let me just say this. It was unthinkable to say that anyone could purify anything from sin in any way unless you were referring to God the Father. This got Jesus in trouble time and time again because any time he made any mention of forgiveness of sins, the Jewish leaders were all over him saying, who do you think you are? And the author of Hebrews says, I know exactly who he is. He's God. And he can do that because he's God. Because God is the one that purifies us from our sins. So already we see in these opening verses several things that were improper to say about anyone other than God, which leads us to the main point, the greatness of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God. Of his being. I have to say, as a pastor, when I come to a passage like this, I tremble because there is a depth of meaning here that I don't think I'll ever be able to touch in my teaching with you. There's so much richness here that I can't possibly communicate it to you. But let me at least try. Surrounding this statement are these two statements about Jesus as the Messiah. That he is the heir, the son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Jesus has a privileged place in the household of God. To say he is the son, to say he is the heir, is to say he is the firstborn. He has authority over all things and all things belong to him. That was the right of the firstborn. And so that cultural idea is applied to Jesus Christ. And again, in the Jewish mindset, that wouldn't make sense because to equate Jesus as the firstborn, to equate him as the heir of all things, was to give him a privileged position that nobody should have the right to. This is not saying that Jesus is the first of all creation. It's not saying that he's just better than the rest of us. It is saying he is equal to God. And as if that wasn't enough, he goes on and he talks about his kingship It says, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. This is more than just a place of honor. This statement, to sit down at God's right hand, is used in terms of sharing the very throne of God. Turn to Revelation chapter 3. We'll see this very clearly. Because you're going to interact with people that say, well, you know, the Bible doesn't really say that Jesus is God. It just says he's really, really, really important. And that's false. It is a lie to say that the Bible does not say Jesus is God. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 hinges on the fact that Jesus is God. Well, let's just look at this idea of sitting down at the right hand of the Father. Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. It's in the letter to the church of Laodicea, one of these victory statements. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my Father on his throne. Jesus is saying, I'm sharing the very throne of God. Now, in his case, it's different than us. He shares God's throne because he is God. Whatever place we have in the presence of God, we have because of who Jesus is. He has that place because of who he is. And so he says... He sits at the right hand of God. And it's interesting because there's two word pictures going on here. One is of a king on a throne who is reigning. When the king sits down in Scripture, he is ruling. He has conquered. His work of conquering, in a sense, is done. And now he is ruling with authority over all things. But if you go back to Hebrews chapter 1, it says that it's after he had provided purification for sins. So not only is he the king, but here he's also the priest, which again is another major theme that will be continued throughout Hebrews. When a priest sat down, it, mean, it meant his work was done. He had performed the sacrifice. He had purified the people, done what was necessary for them to be forgiven of their sins. So here our high king sits down to reign, and our high priest sits down because it is finished There's so much here christ is both our king and our priest and now let's look at that verse verse 3 the son is the radiance of god's glory and the exact representation of his being to say he is the radiance of god's glory is to say that he's not just a reflection when you look at the moon and you see the light and you say, wow, that's beautiful and it's amazing, there's no light that the moon is giving off itself. It is simply a reflection of the light of the sun. That's not the phrase that's being used here. It is to say, if you could describe the beauty and the glory of the sun and then could also describe the beauty and the glory of the radiance of the heat and the light, There you have the relationship between the Father and the Son. You cannot have one without the other. They are the same. This is language, which is so difficult when you come to the Trinity. It's so difficult to describe that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are distinct persons. We can speak of them separately, but to also speak of them equally And the author of Hebrews is using language here that is getting at that core truth. Jesus came and was born in the manger. Jesus came and dwelt among us. But when he did that, he was the very representation, the very equality of God himself. He's the radiance of God's glory. The physical representation and physical presence of God. Now just think about that again. When these people saw Jesus walking around, they were seeing the face of God. They didn't understand it. He wasn't glowy and, and shiny. and I don't think he had a halo, contrary to all of the paintings to the otherwise, but he, he walked around and they were seeing the very radiance of God. And one day we will stand, probably kneel, before his throne. and We will see the very radiance of the glory of God. And I love that in Revelation. And you have these bold proclamations of of this conquering king, this lion of Judah. And then John turns around and he says, I see a lamb that was slain. That's what we have in Jesus. The radiance and the humility. The glory in the king and the servant and the sacrifice. It also says he is the exact representation of his being. This term was used when an authority figure, a a Roman official, would take their signet ring and push it into wax. And what it represented was that all of the authority of that Roman official was represented in that wax seal, that exact imprint. It was as if the authority was right there saying, this is my word. Jesus Christ has the very authority of God because He is God. These two statements taken together the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, say that Jesus Christ is God. His greatness is not due to some lesser comparison to us. They're not just saying Jesus happens to be better than us. It is saying Jesus is equal to God. And if we can come to that understanding, that is a greatness in Jesus Christ that nothing in this world can ever rob or change or mar or distort. To hold on to in our lives, in every situation, Jesus is God, changes everything. Absolutely changes everything. The rest of the book of Hebrews hinges on this truth. Jesus is God. Everything in this book is about the fact that God became flesh and then did these amazing things on our behalf. So don't let go of your faith in Jesus. He is not just some way of salvation. He's not just a better way of life. He's not just a good way of thinking. He's not just good for the kids. He is God in the flesh, our Lord, our King, our Savior got to quit redefining what we compare our standard of truth against. We must recover the greatness of Christ over all things, over our own happiness, over our own desires, because if we don't, our happiness, our desires, will take precedence over Christ. We will say, my happiness is greater than Jesus Christ. And that is a dangerous and awful and scary place to live. And frankly, if you want to know what that looks like, just look at the world around us. The irony that, and I've said this so many times before, but again in this election cycle, it has brought to my attention, the irony that we have lived in a world that is running as hard as it can down the road of I get what I want, when I want it, how I want it, and then you look at how our society is ripping itself apart. It doesn't even matter which side, you, I mean it does matter which side you agree with, but it doesn't matter in the sense that it's ripping itself apart. Because everybody's running in their own direction. We've lost any sense of standard. And I know there are people that say, yes, we need to come back to teaching Scripture in our schools and and having Scripture on our walls and our courtrooms. and and Maybe those things would be great, no doubt. But unless we come back to the story, the truth, the gospel, the good news, the great news of Jesus Christ, none of it will matter. So what's the application of today's sermon? Be amazed at the greatness of Christ. Be convinced of the greatness of Christ. Know that you sit here today with a Bible, or at least access to a Bible, that absolutely definitively states Jesus Christ is God eternal. Make that your starting point. Because then we don't come to God and say, well, what do I think? How do I want Him to act? What do I want God to do? We stop and say, He is God and I am not. God, what do you want to do? Help me to join you in that. Make it less about us and more about you. More about Christ. Christ is the great word of God. Christ is the great work of God. Because Christ is the very greatness of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I confess that I allow these things to slip in my own life. I become consumed with things that are going on around me in in my family or my personal life or our country and and I, I take my eyes off the greatness of Christ. And anxiety and worry set in. Or sometimes pride and arrogance set in. Thinking, look at the great things that I'm doing, look at the great things that I'm saying. Father, I pray that each one of us would fall on our knees and say, Jesus, you are my Lord and my God. You are great. You do great things, yes, but your greatness is not just tied to the things that you do or our perception of them. Your greatness is eternal because you are God. And then, Father, may we hear the message of Hebrews. May we keep going in our faith. May we keep trusting you in our daily walk and our lives lived in obedience to you because we trust in that greatness no matter what this world says and no matter what we might see, we know we have a great Savior who is greater than all else. In your name we pray. Amen.